Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. If you think that Daniel Day-Lewis is the world's most famous and influential cobbler, listener, you're mistaken. That honor instead belongs to the Sherry Cobbler, the subject of today's show. While it's been enjoying a quiet renaissance in recent years, thanks to the bar world taking Sherry under their wing and saying, Psalms, this is how it's done, chances are this drink will never return to its one-time popularity. This was, as star tender Harry Johnson put it in 1888, without doubt the most popular beverage in the country. Even more notable, perhaps, was the Sherry Cobbler's role in inspiring themed bars across the Atlantic and spreading the practice of drinking through a straw. So what went wrong for the old cobbler in the end, you might be wondering? Well, on top of exploring all the ways we can hone this drink, we look into a few theories with today's guest, Melissa Brooke. Melissa is the bar director at New York's P.S., a wonderful speakeasy hidden inside the provision store, Pine and Poke. She also worked at a ton of great bars before then and is also a partner in Divine Spirits, a magic and mixology show. Speaking of shows, it's the Cocktail College podcast listener and it's time to explore the Sherry Cobbler. Good, I'm getting the thumbs up here. It's the Cocktail College podcast. We're joined in the studio today by Melissa Brooke. Melissa, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to get into this drink today. Um, one that perhaps is not the best for the season. I'm not sure. It's a particularly <laughs> chilly day as we record here in New York. Um, but it's the Sherry Cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> Timeless, seasonless, this drink. Convince me. It'll warm you up. It will. So, <laughs> it doesn't have to be warm to warm you up. <laughs> the sherry cobbler. Here's the first thing I think about when it comes to this cocktail. I feel like it's one of those ones that people will be like, yeah, I, I, I've heard of that, or I think that I know it, or I have a basic concept, or probably it has been gaining steam again in recent years, but... For those who need reminding, <laughs> tell us what a sherry cobbler is, please. What is a sherry cobbler? Well, it's interesting that you said kind of they've been gaining traction in re recent years. And I think part of that is with the kind of clamoring for lower ABV style cocktails once again. Um, I've loved this cocktail forever. I just love sherry. So <laughs> that's why I'm here. But um, <laughs> sherry is, you know, does not pack as much of a punch alcoholic wise as perhaps some of the other spirits that people might be familiar with as it is a grape based uh, spirit, a fortified mm -hmm. wine style um, made from Palomino grapes mostly. Mm -hmm. um, so the Sherry Cobbler is a very easy cocktail for even the layman to make in that there's really only three ingredients, um, the fourth being frozen water. <laughs> so... <laughs> If you can get sherry and if you can get sugar and if you can get your hands on some citrus, you pretty much have this amazing, beautiful cocktail mm -hmm. at your ready. How much of an outlier is it in the modern day cocktail sphere where we think about this idea of, you know, and I might be wrong here, but I, I believe there might be kind of some kind of muddling or, you know, fruit going into the preparation of this. 
Uh, I feel like we hit the old apex mountain for that with the the Caipirinha, maybe the Mojito in recent years. And I feel like things have been going downhill on that preparation front. Yes. You know, when I was kind of re refreshing my memory on how classically this cocktail was made, um, there really is not a lot of mention of muddling. And in fact, the ingredients, you know, even if you're going back to the 1800s, seem to be just thrown into a, a glass of some sort, shaken, and then either poured directly into the vessel that you're drinking from or strained mm-hmm. um, without any muddling because when you're shaking with the ice and with the force of the shake, you you are kind of really muddling the fruit, for example, that's in this cocktail. So I've never personally muddled mm-hmm. um, a cobbler, but but also you can. Mm-hmm. You know, I think... I think that there's a lot of, you know, in the bartending community, there's a lot of opinions, but, but sometimes if, if you're making it and it tastes really good, then, then I'm thinking that's a okay, Mm -hmm. whether it's muddling or shaking. (laughs) Two bartenders, (laughs) three opinions, maybe, I don't know. Um, But again, or or just, you know, maybe one further step removed, just that idea of using a chunk of fresh fruit as a component in the cocktail and maybe doing the old dirty dump or however you want to describe it. But just, I feel like, I don't know, maybe that speaks to something of the, the, the pursuit of consistency that we see in bars these days where maybe folks would prefer to use a, um, you know, just juice or quarter ounce of exactly of juice or, or even, you know, prefer to save the, the, the fresh stuff for as a garnish Rather than that, I don't know, maybe I just, I feel like I don't come across those too often. I guess, you know, well, so what you're getting, if you're, if you're muddling or bruising the actual fruit, as opposed to just using, not just, but as mm-hmm. opposed to using the juices that come from it, you're not getting obviously the peel. So mm-hmm. that's an entirely different kind of, um, part of the fruit that tastes mm-hmm. very different, um, and potentially might add, I mean, maybe like a little bit of, I don't know what, like. I don't want to say bitterness, but mm-hmm. right, like if there's the pith in there, the and essential oils, and exactly. That. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, so I kind of said what what the ingredients are, but didn't really. I wasn't as exact, so we're talking about citrus, but citrus theoretically, if you're making it properly, by the way, of a few slices, it says two to three mm-hmm. of oranges sherry and sugar. Mm-hmm. And then now we could do the same thing and talk about sugar and how is that introduced? Are you using right. super fine sugar? Um, and then hoping that it kind of dissolves mm-hmm. um, or are you using simple syrup? Yeah. Yeah. Which, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting conundrum there. Um, the regal shake. Some people might call that one we we're talking about before discussions for another day Though we have thoughts on the regal shake. here. I, <laughs> I feel as though our thoughts are the same. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, you know, you know, exactly. We digress. Yes. <laughs> um, listener, you did hear that right before, though, earlier when Melissa mentioned 1800s. This is a drink that we have very definitive mentions of stretching back that far. Um, why don't we dive into history here? Can you take us back to some point in the 1800s? What year would it be and where would we find the first mention of a sherry cobbler? Um, I'd love to talk about not necessarily the first mention right away, but just the fact that there are two mentions in literature that to me is one of, I mean, it's a Charles Dickens novel is one of them. So that's pretty popular. Yeah. And when we're pouring through, and when I say we, I mean all these amazing cocktail historians that have come before me and have literally poured through newspapers, literature, all kinds of documents, what have you. 
um, to find these details that they did a really great job and wrote books for me to just (laughs) read them a lot more easily. Um, but, but, you know, the life and adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit, like that's a novel I know I've heard of and it never, I guess when I had read it when I was younger, I never, I guess I wasn't interested (laughs) as much in, in the, the cocktail diaspora as I am now, but that's in 1843. Mm -hmm. And there's, a mention of not only the Sherry Cobbler in that, but also in a novel that was written, I think, in 1852 called The Upper 10,000 by someone named um, Charles Astor Bristed. And it's the actual preparation of the cobbler is, like, kind of walked through. And in both of these, there's mention of a straw mm-hmm. and ice. Yeah. And we, you know— Currently, obviously, to not think that there's a straw available or even ice is unheard of. And it made it excited me to then dive deeper into where is ice coming in to the to the cocktail zeitgeist during this time and where is the straw coming in? Mm -hmm. Um, So those to me, the mentions of the sherry cobbler and like the ingredients and and the characters loving it, by the way, it's like this is the best cocktail I've ever had, which you read a lot like in also. cocktail guides and books that were written in the late 1800s, there's mentions of the sherry cobbler and ladies and gentlemen alike will love this, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's crazy that they're genderizing yep. a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, everyone, it's just, it's going to be like this great thing that you're all going to like, which I think it is a great cocktail. So it makes sense to me. It's yeah. pretty palatable to the masses. Yeah, definitely. And I think, okay, yeah, you know, you mentioned there that the preparation is also described. So there is a feeling that maybe people reading this or not everyone reading these novels at the time would have heard of the drink, but it must have been somewhat notable enough to include it, right? Rather than being rather than choosing something so esoteric that no one's heard of, right? I mean, it reflects public opinion at the time. Yeah. The fact that these authors that we now know, I mean, are are very famous to us, are hearing about this this cocktail specifically Mm -hmm. and then mentioning it in in a book that they're writing. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd done a little deep dive there as well. And um, I think, you know, I came across this in the Oxford Companion, which is, you know, wonderful for research on these topics, um, I believe it was the same year, 1843, in the Strand in London. David Wondridge, in his entry for the Sherry Coppler there in, in that book, mentions that there's the first American-style bar is opened in London that basically focuses on two American drinks. It's the Sherry Coppler and the Mint Julep, which are somewhat similar in composition and idea. Sure. I find that fascinating too. You were talking about straws and ice and thinking about, you know, we take them for granted. We think that we're so forward thinking with the idea of concept bars these days or, you know, (laughs) taking, you know, sorry guys, you know, we're an aperitivo bar. We only serve, I don't know, Aperol spritzes or whatever. Like, but this concept existed basically 160, 170 years ago. I find that fascinating. Like that. Yeah. I do too. Actually on two levels for this one. So firstly, it, they're concentrating on like one one or two cocktails. It's not even just like a, a larger genre of cocktails like aperitivo. And secondly, I think there has always been, well, I don't want to say has always been, but from what I have read recently, a lot of, I don't want to say fighting words, but about what country cocktails were created. And, you know, like Americans just want to take ownership over certain <laughs> things. And, you know, then you have our our... 
our brethren across the pond who are saying, well, no, it came here. And and you mentioned Dave Wendrich, like he's a great person to go back and, and look at because he actually finds the research that yep. says like yay or nay. <laughs> but sometimes it's impossible to find, you know, especially I think during Prohibition, we lost maybe a lot of literature about these cocktails that were created prior to in the 19th century. And so the fact that there is a London bar being like, we're going to make these cocktails and they're American. And in some of my travels, like I wasn't sure. I, It seems that the cobbler was definitely invented in the United States. It but seems that way, yeah. There is definitely, you know, some, some people want to take ownership over certain things. So I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. What about, so, you know, we're, we're mid-1800s here. Um, any other kind of notable years around that time or things that stand out in the history of this drink for you? Um, well, again, like for me, what, the notable years also, I, we already spoke about this a little bit, are but are where the ice, for example, like when did ice start get introduced into into cocktail culture? How were people just drinking like warm warm mm-hmm. glasses of spirit? I mean, yes, is the answer. Um, but so it really seems like in the 1830s is when ice for the masses is kind of coming to be. Now, whether that means ice for the masses, but only like the upper echelon of society, I'm not quite sure because I found a bunch of different, you know, um, articles. But either way, ice for the masses, masses isn't until like the 1800s. Yep. Kind of full stop, like middle of. And so... Where were they getting their ice? Like we have, you know, we have refrigeration systems <laughs> and they're getting, you know, here at least in New York City, from what I understand, they're getting it from New England, mm-hmm. from from frozen lakes, like from frozen water, because that's what ice is. <laughs> it's free and comes from earth and nature. And then they just had to figure out how to get it here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which obviously I assume horses are involved and they get it here and then. All of a sudden, these New York bartenders are having to harvest and butcher ice, like a la minute. It's which wild. We'll do, you know, if you go to, there's many cocktail bars here, here in New York City and just here in our world now where people are are using ice in that way. But it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, even if we're doing that, we have a freezer right behind us that we can put it back in and pull it out of. But so now we're getting... Um, like mallets and and ice bags and all of these other different like bar tools to help utilize the ice and like make it exist in the cocktail. It's it's so fascinating and you know, I think you can definitely the history that you're outlining there, I think you can definitely attribute the popularity of ice to this drink in some way because right, you know, like we mentioned the cobbler alongside the julep. Neither of these drinks exist without ice. Right. Right. The, the, you know, it's crucial to the, you could argue that about most cocktails, right? But, you know, like there's ways around it, especially in modern day. Um, another one I have here, just, you know, along those lines, Harry Johnson, very famous, you know, yes. is, is a name that will come up a lot. I'm sorry if I'm jumping in on, on any of your, your, your facts here, but I believe in the 1880s somewhere he noted that without a doubt, it is the most popular drink or cocktail which again, so if we are giving it something of, you know, some credit for spreading the popularity of ice, I think that's fair enough to say, given what he's saying about the sherry cobbler at this time. Yeah, he's saying it's the most popular, so you better have all the ingredients, including the one that maybe is hard to source. (laughs) Really hard to source. (laughs) 
I believe both he and um, Jerry Thomas, but definitely Jerry Thomas, also made mention of this cocktail as one of the most important parts of it was looking pleasing to the eye, right? It's not only tastes good, but it's beautiful. And so in my opinion, the ice actually does kind of enter because, you know, when I think of like the most right now beautiful cobbler, I picture it almost looks like a snow cone on top and then you're building your garnishes around it and getting fresh fruit and berries and whatnot. Um, And so without, without this beautiful specific type of ice that's being used in this drink, you're not really... You're not going to get that beauty that I guess was also what made this cocktail luxurious, mm-hmm. you know, or or appealing to people. Um, so I thought that was, I think that's important as well to note. So what goes wrong for the sherry cobbler? <laughs> I don't think anything. I mean, but what happens? Because, you know. Oh. <laughs> I, in terms Why of does the, it disappear? Exactly. It's on this streak, right? It's doing so well. Johnson saying this is brilliant. I think another one, there's a. Paris Universal Exposition. Again, thanks, Dave Rundich, for this and the the Oxford Companion. But, like, I think this happens in 1867. They're getting through 500 bottles of sherry a day at this convention purely because of cobblers. So the the sherry cobbler's on this tear. Well, and also, so not to try and, like, out out nerd you or, like, out... out (laughs) Bring it. Fact. (laughs) Out factoid you, but... um, Again, I was trying to figure out, like, wh- how did Sherry get here in the—or, f- like, when did Sherry get here in the first place? Yeah. Um, and I was reading articles about how, like, Magellan had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of barrels of Sherry on his, vo- like, maiden voyages. So Sherry was really knocking around, I mean, like, getting to us a lot earlier than I had envisioned it might have. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I understand when sherry came about originally might have been much might have preceded that by a lot but um there was lots of sherry being had (laughs) and you're right and then it just kind of it just kind of fizzles out Mm -hmm. um i i don't i'm sure there are you know a lot of answers for that i know if we go a little bit later down the line and get to prohibition yeah um which i mean i love to drink sherry on its own but if you're talking about the sherry cobbler people weren't making cocktails when it was illegal to be drinking because Mm -hmm. they were just trying to get whatever they could and get it quickly. So I assume that has something to do with it. But like in the early 1900s, again, you just, I guess like anything, if it's not being spoken about or something else just kind of takes over. Yeah. um, Maybe stirred cocktails, you know, or just. Yeah. The the novelty of ice is worn off. Yeah. How fickle we are. Yeah, we are. (laughs) Well, and that's funny. Another thing, too, is about the drinking straws, um, how, you know, in a lot of accounts you read that um, the reason why they wanted to drink out of straws is because it was bad for your teeth to touch the ice. Like dentists, dentists said, don't let, which, you know, I'm sure everyone's teeth were so gorgeous back then, but <laughs> <laughs> the ice, oh. the straw really, you know, prevented your your teeth from touching the the, the top of the cobbler ice. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. I think another thing when it comes to sherry and prohibition, right, it's just that, you know, how are you drinking alcohol in the U.S. during that period? Either, or where are you getting your alcohol from, right? Someone's making it here illicitly and probably to a very low standard, or we're bringing it in from abroad, um, for the most part, right? Whether it's coming through Canada or from, you know, whiskey, I guess, right? I look at that and I think two things. First of all, 
I don't think Al Capone and the likes have set up a Solera <laughs> system <laughs> where they're waiting to get, you know, their floor to perfectly develop for their sherry. We'll get into sharing a little bit, but you know what I mean? I can't imagine Capone and the gang thinking, you know, this is what we need to invest our time in. And also if we're buying it from abroad, right? Like you want bang for buck. People want to get drunk. People want to get loaded. And it's like, what is, what's the strongest thing we can get for the cheapest price? Sherry's not it. No, but, and also I just realized I had like a little bit of a moment where it could also have something to do with, I'm the worst at pronunciations, but phylloxera. Mm -hmm. So that was around the late 1800s. So that's also another huge possibility that I should have thought of, but that it's, you know, with, with these vines being destroyed, destroyed in Europe, maybe it was actually genuinely just harder to get your hands on. Yeah, that's probably so true. And, and also like, again, probably... Uh, another theory here could be, right, that the extreme popularity of sherry in the UK and the UK being a closer market and just easier to get it there, probably established relationships already. Yep. Who knows? Probably, you know, like much with history, it's not one factor, it's many. But um, Yeah, well, we know currently what the supply chain, what, what <laughs> issues it can be getting stuff. So. We're living through those. <laughs> I got it. All right, we're going to fast forward around 100 years, I'm going to say. Um what about now? Why why do we feel like this is a drink that's becoming popular again? Or yeah, there's more focus on it these days. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to just harken back to this whole low kind of ABV movement that we have. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of less, a lot of people are drinking less anyways. Mm-hmm. And then if they are imbibing, not trying to drink to get drunk so much anymore. And, and also with cocktail culture, you know, for, I don't even know how many years at this point to say, right? Like 20, 10. Yeah. It's so, people really love, love cocktails and love understanding them. And so it's again, not about drinking to get drunk as much, but it is about drinking something that genuinely has an amazing flavor profile and interesting ingredients. And again, with this one in particular, you know, what I think like an Oloroso is 18% alcohol by volume. So if you're using, and, and that's, I think like around the highest in mm-hmm. terms of sherry's. So you can enjoy this really wonderful cocktail and still feel good yeah. afterwards. Um, I think it's really well balanced cocktail. Um, I think, you know, again, all of these cocktails, I, the coolest thing that I think about cocktails for especially layman is that with three very simple ingredients, you can make an entire library of cocktails. And, you know, those three ingredients, I said, spirit, sugar, and uh, citrus. In Input one, take out another, and you have a whole other cocktail, right? Like a, a daiquiri is, I just, those three things are in a daiquiri. Mm-hmm. So for this cocktail, again, you take a specific type of spirit, which is the sherry, specific type of citrus, which theoretically is, you know, three orange slices, and a specific type of sugar, which could be, you know, sugar, like actual mm-hmm. sugar or simple syrup. And you have this cocktail that tastes delicious. It's really complex. And we can talk about the sherry and why that makes it so complex. But, you know, there's just a lot of layers to this very, very, I don't want to say basic, but basic cocktail. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's called the sherry cobbler, does the cobbler become a kind of unofficial category of drinks like julep does in a way? Are there any other common base spirits or ingredients, whether it's a fortified wine or something that's 
used to your knowledge too? That, or is it just like, it's just the sherry cobbler, you know, it's just like, there, that's just the name. No, there's a champagne cobbler. Ooh. There, there are many cobblers you can make with, mm-hmm. with wines of different sorts. If you go through these old cocktail books, you know, from the late 1800s into the early 1900s, they have sections on cobblers. Um, so it's not just sherry. Mm-hmm. I happen to like the sherry the best because I just love sherry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and specifically, I would say like Amontillado sherry for me in this mm-hmm. cocktail is just such a winner. Wonderful. Um, but there's other there's other kind of cobblers. Mm-hmm. But that is a really good question. And I love the idea of all these different categories of cocktails, which the word cocktail itself was a cocktail, right? Like that was the old fashioned, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is mind blowing. <laughs> um but yeah, that you would have your just list of all these cocktails and go into a bar and, you know, have this like original menu in the 1860s. And it's just like, I'll have the, you know, and then they have the silliest names, the yeah. coolest names of all time. <laughs> Sherry Cobbler is a much easier, a much easier name to say, I think. I love that the old categories of cocktails too, you know, you have your flips and whatnot and the cobbler suddenly in there, your juleps. I don't know. It's cool. Um, this is going to be a hard one for you because you're a Sherry fan as I am, right? <laughs> So I'm assuming that you enjoy drinking sherry on its own or in, you know, in cocktails. Why, hypothetical question here, why do you think the bartending community has somehow been able to do a better job of embracing this ingredient that bartenders at large like, right, um, than the sommelier community, right, in a way? Because I know plenty of psalms that love sherry too, but I would imagine most bars get through a lot more sherry than most restaurants do when it, on their wine program. Why do you think that is? That's such a great question. I was working at a restaurant um, through the pandemic for the past three years, and it's a you know fine dining Michelin star restaurant. Their wine program is fantastic. Our the sommelier there is this like young amazing genius. Um, and I was I started running the bar program, and I put a sherry cocktail on my menu. <laughs> um, and he loves sherry, and we used to talk about it all the time. And and actually, the the restaurant, which was contemporary American, he was able to put sake on one of our um, for the tasting menus on one of the, the yeah. lists. And yet, sherry, I think it's because it. De- I think it's a generational thing. And I think my parents' generation, for example, when I they think of sherry, they think of like Harvey's Bristol cream. Yeah. Um, which is, I actually don't even think I've ever had it, but I, it's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's the issue possibly is that mm-hmm. people think people hear the word sherry and think, oh, it's a sweet dessert wine, wine which by the way, it can be. And also is delicious. The sweeter sherries are also fantastic. <laughs> um, but it's a much larger category than maybe people are educated on and, and maybe current sommeliers are like working on that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just haven't got there yet or haven't gotten there yet. Um, for me, I, I love savory cocktails. Yeah. Period. Um, or nuanced cocktails. And I also really love clean cocktails that don't have a lot going on. And for me, sherry, first of all, again, I'm going to keep repeating, but it's lower ABV. So you can work with it in a lot of cocktails and it's not going to make the, the, you know, the alcohol by volume rise. Yeah. Um, and also, I had mentioned Amontillado earlier, like there's different categories and a sherry, you know, a sherry connoisseur, I am not necessarily a a sherry psalm, Um, but certain categories to me have this like amazing, 
uh, umami, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for because it's all-encompassing. And there can be, you know, this nuttiness, this salinity, perhaps if you are on the sweeter side, like this raisinated date kind of quality, uh, tobacco, leather, you know, you have— which I'm also describing the kind of wines I like to right now. <laughs> so I think people don't know that. And maybe mm-hmm. if they know that, then they would have a, a little bit more interest in trying different kinds of sherries and, and understanding, oh, I might not like this one because it's really sweet or if it's Harvey's Bristol cream, but I really love this Fino sherry that's super dry and, you know, it's like crisp and, and like citrus. I mean, you know, I don't think people even maybe know that sherry is just, made from white grapes like it's we'll hold that thought because i want to get into that in a second here but before we do you were you were talking about the different profiles of you know different styles there what about this drink in general sherry cobbler if i make one for you what are you hoping to get from that glass in terms of the profile and um yeah that experience when you drink it Um, i guess the first thing that i'm always looking for is just balance and I think that goes back to the way that it used to be made in the on the early menus and the ingredients that we have now, right? Things are different now. The, the sugar that we're using is not the same sugar that I have access to. So I think it's important for us as bartenders or anyone who's making this cocktail to play around and find out whatever sugar they're using and whatever citrus they're using, how do those balance each other out? One size orange is not the same as another size, size orange. So I can say two to three slices and I can say, you know, X amount of sugar, whether or not I'm saying a half ounce of simple syrup, which is obviously, or not obviously, but equal parts sugar and hot water, mm-hmm. how how are those going to balance each other out? And then what kind of sherry are you using and how is that going to, how are all three of those ingredients going to flourish together? So for me, well-balanced is what I'm mm-hmm. looking for. Um, I find it to be just like overall a really lightly refreshing cocktail um, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of fuss and muss. And then again, I use the sherry to kind of bring mm-hmm. the nuance and the like the layers to to it. Mm-hmm. And when you see that drink being handed over to you, <laughs> you want to see that that snow cone of ice, as you mentioned earlier, right? Like that's I the do. Immediate, yeah, that's immediately. Inviting. I do. It's. I feel though, kind of like I'm being hypocritical to myself because one of the things that I always learned and something that I kind of feel strongly about is is introducing ingredients into a cocktail if they're not already in the cocktail. So, for example, like garnishing it with fresh berries when Mm -hmm. there's not even berries in the actual cocktail. There's something about that that kind of gives me a little bit of pause. Yeah. Uh, It's because that's just not how – when I'm creating cocktails myself, that's not how I personally work. Like I would would probably garnish it with some kind of, you know, citrus-aligned scenario. However, I have seen them garnished with mint also, which now you had – What's it called? You had likened it to the mint julep, which I don't disagree. They are similar. Um, That might be really fun to play with kind of, you know, some herbaceousness or some kind of other herb uh, bouquet so that when you're, you know, sipping it, you can kind of smell that. Mm -hmm. Um, But but yes, overall, I'm just looking for this really beautiful, Mm -hmm. (laughs) exciting. Again, you're saying it's winter. I don't know. Maybe in the wintertime, we need something that reminds us of the warm weather. Yeah, put it this way. I mean, I, I crack open a can of Coke every now and again, and I don't want that warm in winter. Do you know what I mean? No. I can have, I can have, <laughs> I can have cold drinks in winter too. Yeah. Or my martini. There we go. First mention today. Um, all right. I, I stopped you. We paused a little earlier when we were talking about um, just the fact that maybe most folks don't know that Sherry's made from Palomino or, you know, what the production process is. We're not going to get into that today because... <laughs> 
two reasons. A, I want to say that as soon as we go through this, people will listen or go in one ear and out the other because that's what happens when I've been drinking sherry for years. I know the production process, but I still need to look up my notes every time. So there's that. I mean, I just think it's a little bit pointless. But also B, you don't really need to know how it's made. Like, how does it taste is what we're, what, what we care about here and specifically for this. So, you know, I've just skipped, uh, I've just skipped a, a whole like alcohol 101, sherry 101 lesson there. Um, you can find it on Vine Pair. We have multiple explainers, but let's talk about sherry as an ingredient and the, and the categories and which style of sherry you think is best for this or most classic and why you think those work. Sure. Um, thank you for saving me the, <laughs> the possibility of doing a science lesson. Um, I will say just really quickly for anyone who might be interested, mm-hmm. you and I know this, it more or less to like really dumb it down. And I'm not intimating that anyone listening is dumb. It's more for me mm-hmm. to <laughs> feel no, like I can I'm explain it in a way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm comfortable with. But it has to do with the yeast, right? Like it has to do with how how the fermentation process works mm-hmm. and and how. Ha- depending on what le- like type of sherry you're drinking, how much yeast basically existed in the process to allow or not allow oxygen to affect the the product, mm-hmm. right? Like as th- it's aging, kinda, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the ones that, okay, the, the, the most dry um, would be Fino, I would say, um, and Manzanilla, right? Mm-hmm. So- those two, while not okay, let's start with Fino. So Fino is just this really like light, refreshing, crisp, grape-based spirit. Um, I don't. It's not, in my opinion, as I keep using the word nuanced. I don't know. It's like the one word that keeps coming into my head as maybe some of the other sherries that I would use for this cocktail. Yep. Um, I think Fino Sherry has its place in other cocktails, but specifically for the cobbler, I want one that is a little less of all of the words that I just used. Yep. Um, and then, so therefore Manzanilla is kind of the same. It in just my comes opinion. from closer to the coast, right? And that's got that salty. Yes. That's, that's the, that's the 101 on Manzanilla, right? It's Fino, but it's from a specific area and it's slightly salty. Yes. And then I think again, like maybe like the tiniest bit more oxidation, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and and we're talking about Spain, by the way, for anyone who... Oh, yeah, sorry, that. yeah. <laughs> <These> <laughs> Maybe are... that's an important one. <laughs> <laughs> this is in Spain, in the mm. south, with a really lovely climate. <laughs> um, right, so then now we get to Amontillado, which is the one that I personally recommend. I But again, I love Amontillado, Sherry, just so very, very much. Um, so again, it's aged maybe a little longer and it's aged after these certain yeasts that were more active in the original ones, um, disappear kind of on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this one just has a little bit, there's just a lot more going on because I assume the interaction with the oxygen. Um, so again, for me, an Amontillado is nutty. Um, it's, it's a little bit like there's saline, there's like a, just this like viscosity I kind of, that I can't explain. And again, like tobacco, leather, like it's just, it's a lot more intense. Mm -hmm. Deeper in color. Deeper. And yeah, intense is not the right word, but yes, deeper amber. Yeah. Right. So the, the Fino is going to be lighter, like pale, like Mm -hmm. straw colored basically. And this is going to be also, yeah, like you said there, maybe richer in texture, slightly more weight. And again, like, I, I guess, 
you spoke about Fino being great for other cocktails, maybe where you're using a dry vermouth, right? Like that's a good replacement there. Yeah, I think that Fino Sherry works really well in stirred spirit forward cocktails. And I and that's not to say it couldn't work in other cocktails, mm-hmm. but just for me personally, that's how I feel um, based on its flavor profile. Whereas I think the Amontillado, for example, holds up a lot better when you're shaking it with ice or when there's more dilution. Yeah. Um, and then adding the citrus um, because you need you need something that has a little bit more character and body, I think, to kind of stand up to other ingredients that you're adding that aren't simply spirit with a tiny bit of dilution. Yeah. Um, so that's the number one you're going for. If that's yeah. not available, it can be hard to get hold of good sherry, depending on where you are in this country. Where are you going next? I, I well, all right. So then after, so Oloroso, right? Mm-hmm. That's the one we like haven't discussed yet. So... Oloroso is going to be the highest in ABV. Um, and in terms of like the nuttiness that I just described, it this will also have that. However, it's a little sweeter. Mm-hmm. And so I would actually happily use an Oloroso in my sherry cobbler, but I would pay attention to the amount of sugar that I was using in producing the cocktail. Got it. I think if you are looking up the classic specs for a sherry cobbler, you can you can get away with using exactly all of them with the Montiato without really playing around much and most likely produce a cocktail that is going to be well-balanced mm-hmm. and and lovely. Whereas any of the other ones that we've mentioned, the first two, I think they would probably just end up feeling over-diluted. And then I think with Oloroso, it might add some really interesting character and, and um, you know, like some raisinated quality almost to it, which could be really cool. I would just worry that it would be slightly sweeter. And so I I might even part from the classic specs of that cocktail and add a lemon slice. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Just to, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to get come at me angry that I'm <laughs> changing these, these cocktail specs that were created in the 1800s. <laughs> that's fine. Don't worry about I'm not, that. I'm no fighting words here, you know, but, but again, that's what we do, right? Like at, yeah, at, we change we, things. We take what, we yeah. take what we know works. I mean, usually if you know it works, you should leave it. Mm. But but if we are going to do anything, you take what you know works and then you just kind of tweak it to make sense in the moment based on what, what is available. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making Negroni Spagliatos with Prosecco these I days. I heard. <laughs> so everything can be changed. <laughs> All right. I did mention before we move on to the next ingredient, sherry can be kind of hard to come across. Um if you were going to just maybe suggest one or two, uh, you know, bodegas or wineries, production houses in the region that you think people should look out for that, okay, they might not be at every total wine across the country, but you'll have a good chance of getting them, right? Is there one or two names you might want to highlight there and say like, look, this is something I think is, or I've used before in cocktails and this is really solid. My go-to, my go-to all the time producer, my go-to, I'm not saying I use it all the time, is mm-hmm. Lustau. Mm-hmm. I am never feeling like that was not a good decision. Yep. <laughs> Lustau Amontillado is is definitely a go to of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, I mean, it depends on obviously where you're where you're listening to this. Like here in New York City, I assume you can get it at Astor Wines and Spirits. Um, I, you know, as someone who mostly at this point sources from the places that I work at. You know, I get I get these kinds of things from my distributors, so Mm -hmm. I'm not constantly out out on the streets looking for my (laughs) (laughs) for my uh, my sherry source. (laughs) But I would say to me, they always just like 
they get it down. Yeah, exactly. And I would say that perfectly fits that bill there, right? You know, like you can find it in smaller markets, I'm sure. They also make an incredible sweet vermouth that um, mixes a wonderful Manhattan. I've had a bottle in my fridge for about a year, so I should probably get rid of that tonight just thinking about it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Don't drink enough of those. All right, that's good. Perfect. Next ingredient is orange. I think this is probably the first... Yeah, I'm going to say this is the, the the first cocktail that's allowed us to do a little bit of a deep dive or, a, you know, a shallow dive on orange as a fruit. Maybe not. <laughs> is there anything, that, you know, like obviously I'd assume what ripeness are things to consider. But, you know, when you're picking up an orange for this, maybe I don't know, maybe you don't have a specific variety. But what are you considering when you look at that fruit and you assess it before using it for the drink? Um, I don't have a specific variety. Mm-hmm. I, in my travels, when, when you know, brushing up on this cocktail, read everything from blood oranges to mm-hmm. not. Um, and again, you know, thinking back to what was available when the cocktail was first created is kind of interesting. Um, you know, where, it, and actually a lot of the mentions of this cocktail and people loving it talk about the South, which yeah. again is similar, I think, to what we were saying about a mint julep. Um, but here in New York City and in London, for example, like where are your oranges coming from in that time period? Um, for me right now, when I'm looking at an orange, I mean, listen, the first thing that we said about this cocktail or one of the first things we said is that um, it should be pleasing to the eye. So and and with garnishes in general, I mean, this co- this fruit is going into the cocktail, so it is not only being used as a garnish. Mm-hmm. Um but so I think looking pleasing to the eye, you know, right now, actually, a lot of the oranges I've been getting at work are green. Mm. And I have to politely ask my teammates to not use the green ones. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> please and thank you. Yeah. Uh, and please take the sticker off. Love you. Yeah. Those are two good. Those are two great points. Yeah. Right there. So so the, so for anyone out there, you know. Get the orange oranges and make sure that they're, you know. Clues in the name, folks. Clean. (laughs) Um, I think, again, I would just, whatever orange you're using, you you need to know the the sweetness level of it, right? How sweet Mm. is this orange? And then once you know that, you know how much sugar you should or should not be using. Because as opposed to many other cocktails that have citrus, a lot of times we're working with fresh lime juice or fresh lemon juice or fresh limes and lemons. Mm-hmm. And obviously you need sugar to counteract the, you know, the tartness of those two fruits, whereas an orange innately brings more sweetness, but it depends on which orange and like what time of year it is and where it's coming from. So mm-hmm. that would be what I would be looking for, not necessarily the exact type of orange. When you were talking about that there, it got me thinking. It got me thinking about some of the ep- other episodes we've done in this show, particularly acid adjusting, because... As you mentioned, there's no other citrus in this. There may be a temptation among some modern bartenders to look at this and say, okay, orange, but I'm going to maybe dial in the, you know, the acidity using some citric or some lactic. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I mean, how do you feel about that? I don't know. I like, I'm inclined to get annoyed when Mm -hmm. you say that, but, but also it kind of makes sense to me that Mm -hmm. someone might want to do that. You know, and it's all about playing around with the ingredients that it, that they had and, and tasting that cocktail and thinking, well, you know, this is really good. But like I had said earlier, like maybe I would add just like maybe one lemon sweet. slice. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think there's a 
a validity for that. I wouldn't do that, but yeah. I, that's never where my brain goes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a purist. Yeah. Uh, there are a few cocktails I have on my menu right now that I use citric or ascorbic acid, but that's more for like preservation yeah. rather than acid adjustment. Acid, yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not sure. I think, I think you could have a lot of people sitting over here on my side and have a lot of different answers right yep. now, depending on kind of like what the vibe is of the bartender. But I'm, you know, even as I said earlier, like, I really usually like to stick with if it's like made this way, if it was created this way, there's a reason mm-hmm. why it was created this way yeah. and not necessarily veer. A great point. Yeah. I think, you know, depending on your pro, you know, your personality as a bartender, maybe you're inclined to go that way. Unless of course it's like, okay, you know, the specs as they stand from a hundred years ago, they're just ridiculously sweet. Like no one's drinking that these sure. days. Then yeah, sure. You can adjust it. Right. But, yes. um, felt like I should put that one out there cause some folks might be thinking about it. Um, speaking of sweetness, the next ingredient is sugar sweetening agent in some form off the bat. What's your preference here? Well, so when you're looking at the original recipes, they call for sugar. One of them had one, a half tablespoon of sugar, uh, to a half wine glass of water. Hmm. Now, what size wine glass was that? This is you a know, great question. I've done that deep dive. I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. And that was, um, I think that was the Harry Johnson uh, specs, right? And then you have the Jerry Thomas specs, which are uh, two wine glasses of sherry. Again, what size? To one tablespoon of sugar. Mm -hmm. And then two or three slices of orange. Mm -hmm. So if I'm making it traditionally, then I guess the answer is tablespoons of sugar. But also what kind of sugar? Like what does that mean? Not powdered sugar. And obviously for this, I wouldn't use like Demerara or Turbinata or anything like that. So, I mean, white granulated sugar is, I assume, what we're going for here. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't personally feel badly using simple syrup. Yeah. Again, you just need to make sure that the sugar is dissolving and certain sugars won't dissolve as quickly. And, you know, sugar dissolves most quickly when you're adding alcohol. Mm-hmm. So will it dissolve quickly in the sherry versus like if you're making an old fashioned and dissolving right. it in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, rye whiskey. Uh, so again, depending on the size of the orange slices, and then I would do two ounces of sherry, not wine glasses. Yep. Personally, um, for the cocktail, I'll gladly drink two wine glasses of sherry <laughs> another time. Um, and then, you know, the other thing you can do is dissolve the sugar, like with the oranges and muddle it, Got which it. we talked about earlier. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, it definitely seems like simple is the, you know, easiest way to go. I guess it's, you know, called that for for a number of different reasons. Um, I did do, I did look into the wine glass thing recently as well. And I forget, it's either one wine glass is one ounce or one is two ounces. Now, if it were two ounces, that would be four ounces of sherry in this. Did that track or does that seem excessive? Because I do feel like a lot of cocktail recipes also from back then were like, one wine glass of gin, yes. right? And that that makes sense that it would be roughly two ounces. Yes. Given modern day, right? It, it makes sense to me that it would be mm. two ounces. So does four ounces of sherry sound excessive there or does that... It you sounds know? excessive to me, but I mean, you know, it's sherry. It's not something that's like, you know, a hundred proof. So <laughs> it makes me less concerned. Yep. <laughs> um, I don't, I, you know, I... It also depends on the vessel that you're drinking from. Yeah. And then that's the other thing. When you look up the the older recipes, some, again, I think I said this earlier, but some of them may get directly in the vessel. 
and then and then dump it into something new or strain it over something new. So how much how much volume, I guess, is the answer to the question? Like, how much mm-hmm. volume are you looking to create in the vessel that you'll be drinking it from? And how much volume does the ice displace? Mm-hmm. So many hypotheticals. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to I'm going to ask you to make some final decisions on those because I'm going to ask you now to talk us through the preparation of this drink as you would make it including your specs. So you get to make those decisions and, I don't know, add your name in history here somewhat to the old, uh, you know, the Johnsons, the Dickens. Uh, we have we have Melissa Brooke here now etching her name in history on the on the your version of the Sherry Cobbler. I'm so wildly uncomfortable right now. <laughs> no etching. No etching. All right. I have my number two pencil here so we can erase if need be. Quietly, quietly um. penciling into the annals of history. Well, no, but just all of which is just to say, yeah, feel free to take those executive decisions on those. Well, it's funny. So part of the reason why I wanted to do the Sherry Cobbler today is because we've been playing around with Sherry a lot at the, the spot that I work at because I have found my match in a coworker who I love working with who also loves Sherry just as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And so we're just, you know, like on the fly making a bunch of different cocktails all the time. And she actually, uh, the other night we had a couple guests come in and she was playing around and we have a cocktail with an apple fennel shrub that I made. And there's a lot of stuff in it, just not apple and fennel, but she made basically like a version of a Sherry cobbler using that as the quote unquote sugar. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, you know, it's, it's liquid. So, you know, we did like an ounce of that and then, you know, like a half ounce of fresh lemon juice and a bunch of other stuff. So that's where my mind is going right now. I, I probably currently, if I was making this, I would use simple syrup mm-hmm. um, just for the ease of measurement. Um, you know, again, like one tablespoon of sugar, you know, I mean, I have I have a scale and I have all the things that I need to do that. But I just think it would be easier for me. I just work with my jigger and I would probably measure an a half ounce of simple syrup mm-hmm. and then um, and then add three orange slices. And then I would add a couple ounces of the less style Montiato sherry mm-hmm. and I would shake it up and dump it mm-hmm. and then just top it with top my it with. crushed ice. And so you're not doing any muddling there? No, I wouldn't muddle. Uh, when you say a couple of Hard ounces, shake. we took in two ounces? Yeah, yeah, two. Two ounces, cool. And hard shake? Hard shake. That's why I wouldn't, I'm not muddling. And that's also why if I'm shaking, I'm not using um, Mm -hmm. sugar. Mm -hmm. Like, sorry, that's why I'm not using sugar is what I'm saying. Perfect. (laughs) And those oranges are orange, not green. They're the most beautifully (laughs) fresh, Mm -hmm. right off the tree, ripe orange oranges. Preferably a Seville orange because, you know, Sherry is from Seville. You know... Yes, if it grows together, it goes it together. It goes together. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering how these two ingredients first came together, and that does seem like that would be a pretty. Maybe it was. Maybe it's invented in Spain. It's all a lie. New York. Who knows? <laughs> um, highball glass for this chilled highball. I I actually love a really beautiful, like a bigger kind of like snifter glass, so Ooh. that when you're when you're topping the ice, you have that the ice. Mm-hmm the snow cone that I was talking yep. about. Um, I guess a highball, a highball works mm. great. Um, straw. Straw. Garnish. They say berries, so I'm doing berries. Berries. Yeah. Wow. It looks pretty. Fresh berries. Right okay. in the dead of winter. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe something like, yeah, definitely not <laughs> seasonal. No. Maybe something that you pick up in the sherry, I don't know, a blackberry or something. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Again, that's, I mean, that's how, that's my ethos, the way that I always work is mm-hmm. I, when I'm creating cocktails, I always mm-hmm. look up 
the, well, it's obviously on my own, I smell and I taste and I figure out and then kind of look up what they say. Like, for example, if it's Lestau Amontillado, what they feel the flavor profile is and the notes are. Mm-hmm. Um, because they might cue me into something like that's in the earth there that I would have never thought of, right? Like, I think clay mm-hmm. um, is quite prevalent in the Andalusian terroir. Sure. So, um, so I garnish it with clay. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Just a sculpture. <laughs> but no, but you're exactly right. Yeah. Like s- something that a note that you're picking up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would get wild with if I was working with um, sherry and not for a cobbler, but, you know, for like a stirred spirit forward cocktail and maybe do something fun with mm-hmm. like a, a nut, like an olive stuffed with like a nut of some sort. Ooh. Like if, if this particular sherry has like notes of almond, like an almond. Yeah. You know, perfect. Something like that. So I, I agree. That's a very good point. If I wanted to put you on the spot and say, like, look, I'm going low ABV with this drink. I'm happy to do it. However, I need some kind of spirit here. I'm going to ask you for just a little, maybe a little float on top of this snow cone of something. Mm. What would you do? A bar spoon or a bar spoon and a half? Right this very second, for some reason, I'm really gravitating towards rum. Like a really, Ooh. like, beautiful... Aged rum? Aged, like an aged rum. Again, that that kind of picks up the same, those kind of like nuttier maybe is not the word I'm looking for, but those kind of like really, you know, like caramelized, raisinated kind of notes from the from the sherry. Perfect. Just like, yeah, we like to throw in a little curveball there at the end every like now that. and again. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I also, you know, I always say like for me, adding an, adding something like that would be really fun. And there's so many ways my brain went in that one moment. Um, but also I love, you know, like we always say bitters are obviously like the, the bartender's ingredient that, that's, that occasionally is like that. There's just something missing. Like, what is it? I can't figure it out. Yeah. And for me, it's always either bitters or salt. Yep. So I think like a pinch of salt in this cocktail would just be banging just to pick up like that. Perfect. The saline through line and then maybe, maybe a bitter. Like what I would bitters have to play are you around. going for? Because that would look great as well in this snow cone. I know. I'm not sure. That I want to, I want to see if we're using the rum too. I want to see like what, what <laughs> rum it is. Like now I'm, now I'm going back to, to the kitchen to work yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, if any, if all those fails, just go ango because chances are you have it and it looks great. So. I agree. <laughs> All right, then. Any final thoughts on the Sherry Cobbler before we move on to the next section here of the show? Now I feel like I want to go back and just read more about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to deep dive into the Sherry Cobbler. Honestly, uh, so much we've, uh, yeah, so much we've uncovered here. We've traced the history of ice, the popularity of ice. That's it. That feels like a good one from a historical standpoint today. Yeah, I think it's so cool. It's crazy. It's ice. (laughs) All right. Now we're going to go into the final questions of the show where we get to know you better as a bartender and a drinker. Melissa, are you ready? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm ready. You're ready. <laughs> All right, then. Question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? I would say the masses are clamoring for agave these days. So that's that's just kind of what it, what it is. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, as we are going into the colder months, um, you know, whiskeys are, are right up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely tequila. And and there's been a lot more mezcal knowledge out there, which I think is really cool. So yeah. within the past, again, I don't, it's like hard for me to say how long I've been doing this for, for so long, but like definitely five years, 
Mezcal has has been a been a new big big mm-hmm. hit amongst you know the certainly the the people drinking cocktails here in New York City. Yeah, and then you get yeah. I, I know it's a it. whole thing. Well, right, because yeah. because <laughs> then people are like, you're like, yeah. I feel like from bartenders, I get this. Yeah, it's amazing. More people are drinking mezcal, but then you're like, all right, how should I drink it in a cocktail? Whoa, don't. What are you doing? Yeah, leave the mezcal out the cocktail. It's like, well, <laughs> what am I doing then? Sip it nicely. <laughs> Sip it nicely. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I'm on board with that too. Like, yeah, stick it in a cocktail if you want, but that's that's one I can go for a nightcap of, like more frequently than maybe some aged spirits. Yeah. Good one. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? So, well, now, of course, ice (laughs) to me is the craziest, awesome ingredient that we have. I discovered, um, sorry, I did not discover. I was reading an article (laughs) about half a year ago um, from Jeffrey Morgenthaler that he had recently switched from using a Y-peeler to a Bosca cheese slicer. Mm-hmm. This has changed my life. Mm-hmm. And I will fight to the death. I will fall on my sword for this cheese slicer that I'm now using to peel my green mm-hmm. oranges. Because <laughs> as someone who, you know, in my in my bartending use, definitely lost a fingertip here and there, um, I, I can very much use a, a Y peeler and be fine. Like I haven't had, have not had any accidents in a while. But I ordered one for the place that I work at now is you know, six months old. So I was going from soup to nuts, figuring, you know, getting everything for the bar to be ready. And I took a chance and I ordered one of these and then I ordered two Y peelers. And every bartender that I work with was like, what, where, how did you? And I was like, I don't know, how does everyone not know this right now? How did I just find out about this six months ago? And why have I not not been using this forever? Especially in those really high volume bars. Because that's the thing, like, you know, it depends on where you're working and, and what bar tool you know, do I like the best depends on, well, my serving quality over, it's always quality, but yeah. is there also quantity Is it a volume involved? place or yeah. is it, yeah. So for the volume places, having, having this like foolproof way that peels the fruit still so beautifully. Really nice. Like maybe there's like a tiny bit more pith if you like get too kind of like, if you're pushing too hard, but that I swear by it now, it's the best thing ever. It's a great hack. It's a great hack. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Okay. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't remember who necessarily, like if there was one person that told me this or if it's just something that you'd think would be like something that I definitely have just picked up throughout the years that you would think wouldn't need to be like ever told to someone who works in hospitality. But I, I feel, and especially now that I train a lot of people, there still is this, there still is this like inability sometimes for even the best bartenders to remember that we work in hospitality. And so for me, I think, um, when you are in a busy moment, being able to engage a guest in whatever way is possible to let them know that you are here, like they are seen, you see them, you're here for them. That to me is like an invaluable piece of my puzzle in hospitality. I don't know that it was like necessarily advice that one person gave me, mm-hmm. um, but it's definitely from working with some amazing people, something that I picked up. And so just that simple, like I, making eye contact with them, letting them know, you know, 
you're going to, you're, you're getting there if you can't. Yeah. I mean, obviously the ideal is that you can get to everyone all at once, but, Mm -hmm. um, and just so in general, remembering when you work in hospitality that you work in hospitality. (laughs) Yeah. It's such an interesting thought, right? Because it's like, you know, you can make these decisions. Some people are shy, right? When some people speak with you, they might not like, you know, make eye contact or whatever. They might be more reserved, but that's fine. But it's part of this job, right? Being in hospitality, like part of it is making people feel comfortable by these things. It might make you uncomfortable, but you have to make other people feel comfortable. I don't know. It's it's part of the it's part of the gig. It's interesting. It is. It's been, you know, that part of it, like during the pandemic too, like being hospitable in a time when you felt like potentially uncomfortable. That's a whole obviously other that's yeah. a conversation for another day or maybe one you've you've already had, but but so I think just like coming back to that like center place of okay, well, but I do work in hospitality. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to ensure that everyone else is having a great mm-hmm. time and hopefully, you know, I'm having a great time too in the process. But mm-hmm. so something as small as making eye contact I think is really important. Quick follow up, do you think that that has aided you in other aspects of life or do you feel like that that's just always been something that's been part of your personality? I think it's something that has always been part of my personality. Although I think it being in the hospitality industry definitely has formed me mm-hmm. much, whatever that is has been brought out a lot more. I would say, um, you know, when you meet someone looking him in the eye, well, my dad always used to say that though, look them in the eye, shake their hand. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you can repeat their name, cause then you'll hopefully remember it. Things yeah. like that. It's really nice when you remember someone's name. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a good, it's, it's a good quality. I don't know. I think it's like, no, none of, none of the rest of my family really worked in hospitality in any way. So I think one of the things like my first job was like working as a food runner would give me the confidence just for something as simple as like you go to a restaurant, actually someone at your table is not happy with something, but we're not really a family of complainers or whatever. We would just like grin and bear it and get through it. Whereas that gave me the comfort to be like, you know what, actually, can we change this? Or like, we're not happy with this or we're not happy with the wine. Like, I don't know. I think working in hospitality sort of arms you with that too. I think that's a really good point. I actually had a guest the other day I'll preface this by saying people don't usually send back my cocktails because they're fantastic. Of course. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do have a, 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 the cocktail program that we currently have is going really well. We don't get a lot of sendbacks. I actually mean that. Um, and I had I had two guests order two cocktails and finish them. And then one of them kind of made a comment that they didn't really like it. And I was like, oh, my goodness. You know, I, I wish we would have known this before. Yeah. And I did. We, I solved the problem and it was fine in the end, but it's, it's me feeling sad that I didn't make this potentially person comfortable enough to know that they could just say to me, this isn't for me. It's okay if it's not for you. Not everyone loves everything. That's why my ethos, like I said before, a lot of times is just keep tasting it and see if you like it. Like I might like something that's less sweet than you or vice versa. Everyone has different, you know, like flavor profiles and the way that they interpret their taste buds and the way that they interpret cocktails. So yes, I think like me working in the industry, if I sat down and genuinely didn't like something, I would feel comfortable to say it because I know I would want someone to do that for me, not in a way that's rude, but acknowledge, you know, being honest, like acknowledging it's, that's okay. It's win-win for everyone. I think in that scenario, it's no big deal. Yeah. Feel empowered, people. Send those dishes back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> if, if you have to, or cocktails. <laughs> only if you have to. <laughs> Penultimate question. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? That's such a hard question. Um, I 
think, okay, so I love bars mostly for the ambiance and less for everything else. Obviously, I make cocktails, so I like a beautifully made cocktail. I think you and I are on the same page where it seems like we enjoy drinking rather like clean cocktails and, you know, maybe not a lot of fuss and muss. And I heard you talk about a martini and mm-hmm. my favorite cocktail is the Gibson. Ooh. The gin Gibson. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of, not a lot of more bars have, have pearled onions these days, but still it's not like the most common thing. I'm not just going to roll up somewhere and assume that they have that for yeah. me. But so there are so many bars that I could think of that I'd love to go to because especially here in New York City, at this point, I have so many friends that work at so many places, so I go for the vibes and the energy and the music and all that. But I would say probably Raul's Ooh. bar. And I don't even know if they can make me a Gibson, but I know that they can make me a gin martini. That's a great start. <laughs> and they have those, you know, like the old school martini glasses. And mm-hmm. they're just like, there's so many of them out on the bar, like being chilled because so many people are ordering martinis. <laughs> I just love watching it. Like yeah. the service bartender is just knocking out martini after martini. So I so think much fun. I think that's it. The bar team there, they're they're just fantastic. Yeah. No, that's a great pick. That's a great pick there. And then yeah, like you said, but hey, if you see a Gibson on the menu, nine times that well, the bartender definitely cares about it. We talk about this a lot, but B, if it's on the menu, chances are they're making their own onions, so even better. Yes, of course. <laughs> Brian away. I want to know all about it. <laughs> Last question for us today, Melissa. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Well, I think it's a Gibson. It's a Gibson. I would make, I would brine my own. You brine your own. Okay, yeah. Onions. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I'm like so attached to cocktails that that I like need a last meal kind of thing. I would maybe want to order a really nice bottle of wine. Is that like such a faux pas? That's allowed. That's allowed. <laughs> a sherry, maybe? I don't know. A less, less Amontillado, <laughs> I think, is the answer. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I think I would probably want a grape-based spirit. But also, again, if it's a cocktail, it's a it's a gin Gibson all the way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe um, like a 50-50 gin martini. Ooh, okay. I was with you right until you said 50-50. Sorry. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Melissa, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Appreciate you joining us here today. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I was very nervous, so. Well, I, you must have just <laughs> shared that as soon as you walked in the elevator. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at Vinepair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>